This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is June Thomas, the co-host of Working, Slate's podcast about the creative process. And uh, this is June's last day at Slate, and June is also working on a book about lesbian spaces that I am very much looking forward to hearing about. June, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danny, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for for being here, especially, again, on your last day when you have um, lots to do. And I, I already feel excited about giving advice together because um, we we just finished having a conversation about browser windows. Uh, I usually have to minimize <laughs> or get rid of stuff. mine. <laughs> I, th- I think it's just like a useful insight into uh, our ways of working, which is, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing with the people what your feelings about having multiple tabs open are. Yeah, it's my only non-sin. I really, I'm not prone to window or tab multiplication. Uh, I'm I'm a mess in many ways, but not in that particular one. I admire that. And I think uh, my, the one thing that sets me apart from the sort of classic too many browsers open problem is um, I'll get about 10 or 11 in a row. And then I think that's too many. I minimize the whole window and I start a new window and I get more browsers going. So I, I forget. I'm also calling them browsers like as if each individual <laughs> tab were its own browser, which is not true. Um, but that way I get the illusion of sort of like, oh, I'm working clean. I'm, I'm just working with seven yeah. right now. But actually there's 40 underneath and they're smoking. I believe that's called out of sight, out of mind. And, and I applaud it. It's a great way of stuffing down the feelings and stuffing down the excessive tabs. Man, you know, this is this is what is unfortunate for however, I don't know if it's the way that I'm wired or what, but I can walk out of a room and forget things, uh, you know, yeah. easily, but I can't stuff down feelings as easily. So I often find like, I wish that I could forget what I was feeling as easily as I could forget keys, wallets, people's yes. names, my own deadlines, like why doesn't this translate? I think that's probably very good for you as a person. But uh, yeah, that is one of the eternal questions, I think. Always remember a grudge. <laughs> well, hopefully there will be something especially like invigorating or freeing about being here on your last day at Slate so that that will creep into our advice. Um, I'm really excited about this first letter, mostly I think because I feel like I have finally started getting updates at the rate at which I've always wanted them. Like I just had had asked for them so many times over the last few months that people finally started writing in and I love it. So this is actually a a letter from someone who wrote in back when I was um, doing this column as part of the Dear Prudence uh, sort of Aegis and they have a sort of new spin on an old question. So it's, it's part update, but also a new question. So the subject here is rocking the boat. Three years ago, I wrote to you as a scared fat girl, nervous about the prospects of my romantic and sexual future. Your advice helped pull me out of the self-hatred I felt like I was drowning in. I spent the following years dragging myself, kicking and screaming, towards loving my body and expecting the same from others. I'm writing to you again with a similar problem, but a new twist. I recently came out as gender fluid. I've realized that my waxing and waning fondness for femininity has a lot to do with not feeling like a woman some of the time. Now that I've named that, I can't put the cat back in the bag. I've accepted my body and my fatness, but it always feels like a woman's body. I'm on the more masculine side, but I sometimes feel like crawling out of my skin because dress doesn't always affect whether I'm seen as a woman. I can't get a flat chest when I bind despite trying numerous options, and an ineffective bind makes me feel worse than not binding in the first place, and my hips are very wide. I cut off most of my hair, which helped immensely, and I'm buying more clothes that feel right, but there are days when dressing like a man still feels like a lie. My gorgeous body is now coming back to bite me in a new way. I'm struggling to find fat trans masks to look up to or ways to make my body feel comfortable for those times when I'm just not a woman. I hesitate to think about other interventions like top surgery or the possibility of HRT because when I do feel like a woman, I love my body and it does feel like home. I've worked hard to feel this way and changing that feels like it could be a betrayal to the work that I've been doing. 
A lot of the stories that I see are of binary or non-fluid trans folks making their bodies feel like home, and I'm not sure how to do that when my sense of myself is shifting and changing constantly. How can I find footing inside myself? I love it. I just want to say to you, I like I loved that last little image, the idea of trying to find footing within your own body it was such a lovely image. I agree, Danny, and I I I found that really the key to the letter in a way, because I'm in sympathy with this letter writer. It, I want to compliment you because clearly your advice three years ago was of use to them and really helped them kind of find some footing. And, you know, they do seem to be discovering more things about themselves, which is really only possible when you are open, you know, to listening to your body and to yourself and to your feelings. And I do think that the key to finding more kind of solid ground with what the letter writer is going through right now is around finding some kind of anchor. You know, where in yourself, inside yourself, um, you kind of find the support for your fluidity. Um, It's been recognized, but it hasn't yet kind of found equilibrium. And I can sympathize enormously because I imagine that feeling of, you know, I'm I'm kind of picturing the letter writer's emotions as as kind of being on a a boat that's, that's like in rough seas and, you know, it is hard to find your footing and hard to, you know, to settle. Um, but I think I'm going to say something quite banal, perhaps. But I think that, you know, rough seas do, you know, they calm. Um, and I think that just trying to stay present, trying to listen to themselves, trying to figure out, um, you know, the different, how they, uh, at the moment, it sounds like they're kind of feeling different things on different days. And just kind of having some patience with themselves, giving themselves some grace to just kind of understand their feelings. Does that seem right to you or is is that a kind of an outsider's view there? No, hugely. I mean, there's so much about this that is specific to like gender fluidity within non-binary and trans sort of contexts. And there's also elements of this that have to do with more universal aspects of aging, um, contending with uh, fat phobia, especially like in the context of aging. Like I think people will sometimes talk or think about the idea of achieving peacefulness with one's body or uh, a sense of neutrality or or even affirmation and affection. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years go by and you see your body start to change. It's like, no, mm-hmm. no, no. My my contract was with the last body. I don't know this guy. Who's this? Like yeah. somebody just showed up. Um, and, and so there's ways in which I think this can be thought of from a number of different angles. So I think that's really, really useful and, and, and meaningful and lovely. And, you know, letter writer, it was just really meaningful to me and moving to get to read this letter. And um, I, I especially found the sort of language of dragging myself and kicking and screaming in that first letter. It felt cheeky. It didn't, I, I didn't yeah. read that and feel worried. Like, are you being too hard on yourself? Like it felt sweet and sort of whimsical. So I can appreciate that kind of language of like, this is difficult work. And a large part of me resists it because there's a part of me that's very, very attached to loathing my own size or fatness because either it makes me feel safe or I feel like it's preventative because someone else will do it if I don't, or I feel like that's what I owe the world. So I I can really, really understand and imagine the, the work, like just the actual effort that that has taken. And yeah, you know, I think certainly when it comes to, you know, more specific resources, unfortunately, I mentioned in my last recording, I've just gotten over COVID and I'm in an apartment in the UK where there's just the thinnest hum of of internet access. So I have no ability to sort of do some of the lighter background research I might have liked. So letter writer, I will just say, I would really encourage you to seek out a lot of fat transmasculine people and a lot of fat gender fluid and non-binary people. And I think often a good place to start because it's not exactly like, oh, this is an exhaustively well-researched area with tons of prominent, you know, figures in the movement. Um, you know, Google, Go on your favorite social media sites and, you know, go for a couple of search terms, whether that be like fat trans mask, fat gender fluid, you know, add or subtract terms to that as you like. Try a multiple rounds where you're putting in a lot of different synonyms. Just see what you get. Look at it. Engage with it. See what speaks to you. See what doesn't. Um, But just set aside a little time to think, you know. I want to make sure that I have a few names at the top of my head or a few maybe, you know, articles or or books I can read or or people I can maybe even like potentially be in community with. Sometimes 
if you live in a city where there's a large enough LGBT center, there's often like really, really robust support groups like that get incredibly atomized sometimes where it's just like, oh, I didn't even know someone with these eight intersecting identities that there was a support group for that. But you may very well find that there's like recovery groups or support groups for people either um, who are like struggling to like live in an ongoing way with like body acceptance or contend with fat phobia or specifically for like fat trans people that may be possible. Yeah, I, I agree that, that finding some some community, uh, finding someone to talk to, more than one person preferably, and, and obviously, you know, to uh, I'm not going to act like it's 1997 and, you know, we have to give warnings about, you know, don't trust people online. But obviously, this is an area where it is difficult to trust that the person that you are, you know, remotely speaking with or communicating with is who they say they are. But, you know, doing what one can do to to feel that, you know, you're in a trusted circle, I think finding someone to talk to, uh, multiple people preferably, would be so useful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, in many ways, again, I, I'm, you know, I'm a cis lesbian woman, but I kind of identify as a cross-dresser. And, you know, I, I always wear men's clothing. I always have. I find that, you know, that's those are the looks that I I'm attracted to that, or not not attracted to as in, you know, that I fancy, but that mm-hmm. I want to wear, that I, I want to look like that. I want to look like a kind of a, a sharp, but let's, this, let me finish the rest of this sentence. I want, like, I want to look like a sharp, thin guy. And I am mm-hmm. not and don't have any kind of desire to be a thin guy. But, you know, there are many of us who who want to look a certain way or like to, would like to look a certain way and just can't. Like I have hips up the wazoo. Uh, I, you know, I love those suits. They just don't fit me. They don't look right. Uh, and so like, there are a lot of people who we're not looking like we wish we could, but that doesn't mean that we need to be unhappy that, you know, we can't find some kind of kernel of, of happiness or kernel of satisfaction or definitely not hate the way we look or hate the way our bodies are. So I, I you know, the, the letter writer's situation is very specific, and I love that specificity, but she's definitely not alone. There are many of us who, who are facing similar sort of issues who are not uh, gender fluid and are, and are not kind of struggling with those specific feelings that she is working through. But, you know, the, there is support out there. Um, it's just, yeah. I admit, it's maybe not as easy to find as just going to the end of the street and yelling. Yeah, no, and I think as you were kind of talking about the various ways in which yours and the letter writer's interests might in some ways overlap, I was thinking, yeah, the, there's the, the between the three of us, there's a Venn diagram and there's, <laughs> you know, a, a fairly substantial middle despite being three different people with three different yeah. sort of like identity terms or, or uh, ideas of ourselves. And so I think that's kind of lovely to both acknowledge like, well, there's some shared areas in the middle and there's some distinct areas that each of us hold in, in our own. And so trying to think about it I, I want to try to approach things that may be helpful to the letter writer and that I hope might be useful as thought exercises or as guidance for finding additional support in their own community. Yeah. I think, you know, especially when you were saying earlier, like, I, I love that distinction between the types of clothes and look that I'm going for evoke an idea of a thin and sharp guy. Hang on a second. It's not that I want to be a thin man, but there's something about maybe some of the elements of what you're looking for in fashion that have to do with a streamlined look, um, a a well-tailored look, um, a, a thing where lines blend into one another nicely. And, you know, through through no fault of any of our own, the fashion industry usually only puts out those garments uh, in a on a thin person's body. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are not actually exclusive to thinness, but most, you know, companies, designers, tailors, et cetera, don't spend the additional time, energy, expertise, and money on creating those looks for other types of bodies. So I, I think that was such a useful moment of, of thinking through letter writer. You've kind of talked about how there's ways in which some of what you're experiencing is helped by or addressed by interventions like dress and hairstyle, and there's ways in which it isn't. And I think it can be really useful whenever you're thinking about, especially a project like I'd like to replace a big part of my wardrobe, um, thinking about what are some of the looks or styles or silhouettes that appeal to me the most that I might think of as, no, that is only something that goes within this, but with you know additional research, I might be able to find you know, somebody has actually thought for more than 30 seconds, what if someone fat wanted to wear clothes 
and has created something. And again, that doesn't mean all those clothes will be immediately available or affordable, um, but is, I think, worth doing that that background research. Mm. I did want to speak specifically to the subject of binding, just because I I do have some expertise in that area. Um, And letter writer, it sounds like you've already kind of landed on a relationship to binding, which is just mostly it's not for you. That makes a lot of sense to me. I I don't have any investment in suggesting that you change that. I I just wanted to mention, because you say you can't get a flat chest when you bind. And and I do think um, one thing that I think is just helpful to say out loud, very few people bind so that they have a flat chest. That's very, very difficult. That requires relatively little breast tissue in order to to get a fully flat chest. And so I think, especially if you're trying it sort of on your own for the first time and maybe don't have a lot of friends who have also bound, it can feel like, well, obviously the goal is like perfect flatness. And if I didn't get that, then I've done something wrong or it won't work for me. And again, you may feel like you've also said that like um, ineffective binding feels worse than not doing it at all. So you might hear this and say, great, helpful information, still don't want to do it. That's totally understandable. Um, I just, sometimes it can be helpful to get a better sense of like, what's the norm, right? Like, where do I fall within most people who bind? Most people who bind uh, see, you know, a, a more streamlined silhouette They see a reduction in volume. Obviously, the shape of the chest looks different. It doesn't look like a a bosom in the same way that it might without that kind of intervention. But I I would go so far as to say most people who bind do not achieve total flatness. Um, And so, again, you might still decide, I don't want to do it anyways. And that would be perfectly reasonable. Um, But just so if it's at all helpful to know that that's not actually a a, a horizon that most binders approach. you know, yeah, the best I usually got was like something that I have sometimes affectionately referred to as the uniboob. Um, and it was, you know, it was flat in as much as it didn't have like an obvious roundedness and I could put a flat shirt over it and it, it would button up more easily. But it was not flat in the sense that, uh, you know, if you if you would put me next to a version of me after top surgery, those two shirts would look the same. Anyways, kind of a long rambling way to address a line that doesn't actually bring up a lot. I just think, you know, it's so hard already trying to change your appearance when you already struggle with, you know, internalized fat phobia or fear or anxiety. And so then, especially if you're doing something new and you worry, oh, I'm doing it wrong, that can feel just like I'm alone and I'm failing. And those two things are two terrible tastes that go badly together. And sometimes it can just help to hear somebody else say, you're not alone in that. Mm. Well said. You know, I feel kind of grateful here that we have two different people with sort of distinct but also non like you and I are both, we have different identities to the letter writer and to each other, but they both yeah. don't involve the word fluid. So we can maybe try to speak right. to that element. Again, like not thinking we're going to be able to offer a perfect solution, but do you have any thoughts about how you might want to advise someone who says, I'm trying to think about my life in the context of possible transition and hormonal interventions, but it's really important to me to acknowledge I don't always feel this consistently. So what's on the table? What's not on the table for me, given that? You know, I, I really appreciate that the, the letter writer is really, you know, thinking through this, thinking about potential interventions, potential solutions to their problems. But it also seems to me that maybe they are not quite ready yet to do anything. And I would just say with, with the greatest of respect for everyone's choices that maybe, maybe the time is not yet right. That does not mean uh, that there won't be some interventions, but I don't, that, that's the kind of the feeling that I'm getting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would also share your sense of, if somebody says, I really hesitate to even think about top surgery or starting HRT, you know, you're simply acknowledging and affirming what is frankly already the letter writer's decision to say that's not yeah. on the table right now. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, just just to let you off the hook, I do not feel <laughs> like you are attempting to gatekeep somebody or or just say, why don't we always err on the side of not transitioning? So yeah. you can don't worry. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, I think letter writer. Absolutely. There is a real challenge before you in terms of how do I make decisions of you know, short-term, medium-term, and long-term consequences when I know that I have sometimes quite different um, 
not necessarily contradictory, but maybe sometimes mutually exclusive feelings, impulses, and desires. Um, and I don't have like a straightforward answer of, oh, just transition this much with this amount of uh, that, and then you'll feel great. Um, so much as um, continue to pay attention to. And you know, I often advise people to write stuff down, especially, mm. especially when they are even just thinking about thinking about the possibility of some aspects of transition. Because I think, especially if you kind of go back and forth on a daily basis or a weekly basis of, oh, I feel so differently now from how I did three days ago, um, it can feel so volatile and and difficult to know where you stand that just having even like a brief log that you kind of update every day or two with just a sentence or two maybe about how you felt, um, maybe if there was like a particularly memorable day where you wore an outfit that felt especially good to one particular aspect of your gender fluidity, make a note of it. It doesn't have to be like I'm, I'm, you know, assigning deep permanent value to every impulse or feeling that flashes across my head. But, you know, maybe just a project of like, all right, for the next two weeks, I'm going to keep a little log maybe in my room or maybe on my notes app, on my phone, wherever, um, just so I can go back and look at the end of two weeks and think like, did I learn anything that surprised me? Did I feel much more in one way than the other than I would have expected? Um, what, what were the sort of patterns of the changes that I experienced? Because that can help you just decide, you know, is there a mode that I want to prioritize right now? Is there something that I'm now realizing when I see it written down makes me feel worse that I used to think made me feel better? Um, and since you are, you know, more than anyone else alive, an expert in your own experience of your gender, you will be able to give yourself the best information, even though I also really hope you're able to find a lot of different, like, fat transmasculine and non-binary and gender fluid people who can help you. I would also encourage you to find lots and lots of those people in part because for all the ways in which somebody who thinks of themselves as a trans man straightforwardly versus somebody who thinks of themselves as gender fluid might have really different experiences. It's also true that there's often lots that we have in common. So I, I guess why I want to encourage you to look for a lot of different people that you can talk to or whose sort of like life you can follow in some parasocial way uh, is, is because I don't want you to feel like anything that's useful to a like quote unquote binary trans guy probably won't work for me. And so I need to think of it as off the table. Same with a cis lesbian because, you know, she calls herself a cis lesbian, even though we might have a lot of other things in common. If it works for her, it might not work for me. Um, I, I just want you to feel really agnostic about method, technique, and practice. So if you find something, frankly, like if you find something from a fat trans woman that you find helpful, use that. If you find something from a fat trans man who's sometimes gender fluid and sometimes not, like I just want you to feel such freedom and permission to investigate with deep curiosity and non-anxiety as many queer and trans people as you can find. Again, not like going up to people in the street and saying like, what socks are you wearing right now? <laughs> um, but, you know, within the realm of, of politeness um, so that you really feel not like transition is one big thing that you either do all the way or not at all. So much as just people do so many things when they feel any version of what we sometimes call dysphoria and we sometimes call other things. And um, you can take many of them in pieces. Um, you can mix and match. You can combine. You can do them for a while and then stop. Um, and, and that's what I want for you. I don't want you to feel like, you know, either never think about top surgery because it's not allowed for me or just like top surgery would never work for me because it only works for binary people. Um, and again, I say all that with no investment in like if you do or don't ever get anything you know, quote unquote done. So it's just that I want you to feel freedom. It's not that I want you to like, you know, eventually push yourself in the direction of hormonal or medical interventions. Mm. So that's, I think my biggest uh, guiding point there is, you know, you're right now you're imagining and imagining is free and it doesn't commit you to anything. So give yourself permission to imagine all sorts of things and try to keep a record whenever you can. Um, you know, I th I think next I want to think about that line, I've worked really hard to love my body. Changing it feels like it could be a betrayal to the work that I've done. And I think I really get where that comes from because it's like, this is what my body looks like right now. This is all the work I've done to get here. If I were to commit to any kind of, you know, more significant change than a haircut, I would be changing the body I just worked so hard to love. Wouldn't that invalidate the love? And um, again, without saying uh, this or that surgery or this or that type of hormone 
would or wouldn't qualify as such. I just think your body is going to change every day until the day that you die. And it's going to change in ways you could not have imagined five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it will change sometimes in ways that you could anticipate or see coming. And it will change sometimes in shocking ways. Um, Does that feel useful, June? Like, I don't want to like get too lost in the weeds of like, hey, menopause is like transition that nature forces on you. But, you know, to me, that feels relevant. No, it it, it really does. Just, and as as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of just hearing a reminder that, you know, we can't control everything. There are some things we can control or at least exercise some form of control over. Um, but uh, it's not something really, you have to kind of acknowledge or give up a certain amount of, like, it just is simply isn't possible to control other people's responses to control. You know, sometimes what just immediately hits you in the, in you know, in, inside yourself, you, you, there's just, it's, 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 it's kind of, pointless and damaging to try to kind of go for perfect control, um, but rather just to kind of keep uh, kind of the constant struggle, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be a terrible, painful thing, but just being conscious that there are some things that you're, it's basically that you're working on, you know, understanding yourself and finding happiness. And, and that really is, is, you know, the great work. Yeah. And, and I just feel really strongly that it is not incompatible to think about, you know, long-term or permanent changes to one's body and loving and accepting one's body. You know, I don't think that, you know, achieving hard-fought um, self-acceptance or neutrality or even affection then means the only way for this to be real and meaningful is me to commit to never make a change. Um, so I'll just say on that front letter writer, I feel pretty strongly you know, as as somebody else who, you know, I'm also fat. I think one of the things that was really challenging about transition was there were ways that the idea of transitioning felt less daunting if I could feel like I can, but I'll be like muscular and thin on the other mm-hmm. side, right? And like mm-hmm. transitioning and being like a fat guy as opposed to a fat woman, that brings up a lot of different kinds of like fears or uncertainties or insecurities and and was a different kind of emotional prospect. And one of the things that I think has been meaningful, uh, grounded, and like consistent with the values that I have of like feminism and autonomy have have had to do with that kind of, you know, I'm taking the body with me where I'm going. Um, so it's, you know, if all, all that is just to say um, the possibility of medical or hormonal transition is not antithetical to the work of self-acceptance and self-love. And I think if if I were to guess, you know that's true about other people. Um, and so it's just the question of turning it on yourself. And I think that's not uncommon for, you know, people who are thinking about the possibility of a transmasculine-ish uh, transition is that fear of, is that abandoning a feminist project mm-hmm. of self-love? And, you know, congratulations, the jury's back in on that one. <laughs> it's not incompatible. We checked, we asked, it's okay, the water's fine. Letter writer, I realize I've gone way over time on this one because it spoke to my heart. You know, <laughs> I, I got you and I have fatness and transmasculinity question mark in common. Um, so, you know, I just I feel for you deeply right back anytime. You don't have to wait three years. You know, keep that log. Do the two weeks right back. Let me know what you think or don't, you know, tell me you didn't and that you thought it was a dumb idea. That's fine. But we should we should keep going. Um, I love all fat trans people. Um, I just think they're terrific and great. Anyways, June, if you would be so good as to read our second letter, I will try to calm down. <laughs> I surely will. The subject is public bystander. I live in a tight-knit neighborhood in a small city. Earlier this year, I walked home when I overheard a couple fighting on the sidewalk. Eventually, the man escalated to physical threats and intimidation. I yelled out when he tried to take the glasses off her face. He fled, and I sat with the woman for a while on a stoop. We exchanged information and realized we knew of one another through work and mutual acquaintances, though we had never met before. She was embarrassed. I assured her that I could keep her confidence and affirmed that what he had done was domestic abuse. She confided that he had been getting worse over the last year, during an anguishing custody battle, and she took down my statement of what I'd witnessed to share with her lawyer 
just in case. But she didn't want to involve the cops because of the risk of racist police violence. I promised her I wouldn't tell anyone what I had seen. I asked her to tell her loved ones about that night and not keep it to herself. I said to reach out if I could be helpful. I got the impression that she's handling an awful situation with resources and support. Recently, I was talking with a relatively new friend when we started discussing our love lives. She's polyamorous and started talking about this great new guy she's been seeing. She sounded pretty infatuated. He is dating around and has also been going through a messy divorce and custody battle. She asked me directly if I knew the person he was married to. This is the same guy I saw committing unquestionable domestic violence. I don't know what to do. I feel a moral obligation to warn her, but I promised his ex-wife I would keep her confidence. I also worry that if I tried to say something without going into detail, I'd sound like an unreliable gossip. If someone told me a new partner was non-specifically bad without reason, I would become defensive and pull back. How can I tell my friend about this person who I don't actually know without saying what I saw? Mm. This one, yeah, this one is, I, I feel so much for this letter writer and and both the difficulty of their position and also just the sadness of of what they've witnessed and then not kind of knowing what, what happened to that woman that they spoke to. Um, did you have any sort of immediate thoughts about what you thought this letter writer ought to kind of keep at the top of their mind or other resources that you hope the letter writer, you know, I think I mostly want to start by saying, I hope this letter writer asks for advice from yes. multiple fronts, not just yes. from us. Like my, one of my thoughts was like, I'll, I'll say what I think is helpful, but also call your local women's shelter, ask them, maybe call the National Domestic uh, Violence Support Hotline, um, get them in the mix, um, maybe talk to a therapist, like get get a lot of advice. I guess is what I wanted to start with. That is that is great counsel. I, I agree. This is such a tricky situation. And maybe because I am in my last day, you know, as an employee of Slate, I'm thinking back to training that one gets at work if you're a manager. In certain situations, there are times when if someone comes to you and says, I just want this to be between us, it can't be. Just because there are certain obligations to report certain kinds of behavior. If you're a therapist, there is a confidentiality with your client. There are certain things, if they happen, you're obliged, you're mandated, you are required to to report them. Now, I don't think this is quite at that level just yet anyway, but I do think that the letter writer, so I don't know if it's obligation exactly, but I do think maybe there is, I think she said, a moral kind of sense that I should say something. And I think maybe that's true. I, I absolutely understand her desire not just to seem like a tittle-tattle, to use a, a terrible phrase, but I think that's kind of the vibe that she's concerned about. You know, she doesn't want to look like a gossip. But this isn't really, a, we're, this is not about like scoop and, 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 and goss. This is about protecting someone from someone who's potentially violent and threatening. Um, if he has done it with one person, it could do it with another. And I think the, the the thing that she needs to keep in mind is like, okay, she doesn't, she doesn't, she's made, she did make a promise to the person that she spoke with, but I think she can let the the person who's talking to her know what happened without breaking that confidence. And, and also maybe there are higher, um, higher requirements here. What do you think? I, absolutely. I, I really understand why this letter writer feels deep conflict because that was a promise that she made sincerely um, and to a woman who was going through a lot. Um, and I also don't think that, you know, someone should treat such promises lightly. But I do think it's also true that there are times when after careful consideration, you might need to decide, I told someone that I would keep a confidence. Um, I have now realized that that ability to keep the confidence directly conflicts with somebody else's potential safety. And I have to, uh, I have to change my mind or I want to change my mind. I choose to mm -hmm. change my mind. And that, um, that is not, there are, there are competing goods here. Um, and so I guess I just wanted to say, yeah, I don't think this letter writer is contemplating going against that confidence lightly. And I also just, I think there are ways that you can work to prioritize 
this woman's, the first woman's position. Uh, and again, that's not to say just like absolutely go for it, tell tell your new friend, but I, I think you can at least give it serious thought and consider it without worrying that would either uh, mean like violating this confidence unduly or putting the first woman in more harm's way, which frankly I think is more important even than the worry about breaking yeah. the promise. Um, I think the key here, letter writer, and, and I understand really too why you don't want to just say something vague, in part because this is a new friendship. And, and when you utilize friendship to try to warn someone against making or continuing with a new relationship, you really do lean on the history um, and the trust that you have with that person because of what they know of your character. So when it's a new friend, part of what's really challenging is you think, well, she doesn't actually know me very well. And she's wild about this new guy. And I think most of us know when someone is in the throes of a heady new romance, it is very difficult uh, to suggest that they stop um, or to warn them. And and um, that even a best case reaction often looks like, well, I'm not going to take that under advisement, but I'm not mad at you for saying something. Um, so I, I think in addition to you're saying, like, I think if you're going to make a serious warning about somebody else's character, you should be able to back it up, which I think is appropriate, um, especially when it's with someone you don't know very well. Um, but I, I think the key here, as, as this was a long preamble, I think the key here was you witnessed this happen in public. Mm. This happened out on the street. So it's not as if, and again, I, it doesn't sound like it was, you know, at noon on a, a, a crowded piazza mm -hmm. where dozens of people saw, but um, there's not really an expectation of privacy there for, for either party. And I don't mean that, like, therefore you, your promise was meaningless. I just mean you can share what you saw without confirming that you were present in the way that you were present. And you can describe you know, I, I'm trying to think through, again, this is why I'm really glad that we started with talk to other people mm -hmm. with specific expertise in domestic violence. Because um, again, I really understand why you would be reluctant. I, I think it's reasonable to assume if you do speak to your acquaintance and you share what you saw, my guess is she will probably try to, t like either she will dismiss you and get angry, which I hope didn't mm -hmm. doesn't happen, but might. Or I think it's unlikely that she would just say, Wow, thank you for telling me. I'm going to break up with him without saying anything and just move on. That would be, I think that would be ideal. I don't think that's likely. It could happen. I think the likelier option would be that she would try to talk to him about it. And that would be where there would be potential for could he then blame the ex wife? Would he get angry with her again and try to hurt her in some way? Um, and that, I think, is the underlying biggest yeah. fear here is like, what if I say something and then she talks to him and then he tries to hurt his ex again? Yeah, I, I agree. And and the, the kind of as a potential alternative to that, there was one kind of half measure that occurred to me, which would be kind of cautioning the new acquaintance in a very general way so that, yes, it did seem more unspecific and it did seem more like gossip. But just to maybe set an alarm or just to kind of have them be on the alert it, more than just in the base way that all women are or that, you know, that many people are, um, that I think that is, I think, a, a less satisfactory solution. But I would understand maybe if that was what was chosen, because there is there is a real risk of there being a, an absolute physical violent blowback on the original you know person who who was the victim of uh, domestic abuse um i also i'm very aware I'm, I'm i'm quite conscious of the you know the letter began by talking about living in a tight-knit neighborhood in a small city i grew up in a small village and you know that feeling of everybody knows anybody's business everybody's business if i do something everyone will know if people take against me there will be consequences if people you know Whatever that consequence is, you know that it, there will be repercussions within the community. It might affect your kind of comfort level. There might be awkwardness. But I also, so I, I, I understand so much why the, why the letter writer is kind of suffering a, a, a kind of a crisis of wondering what to do because it's a sign of their having a really great moral compass. But I do think that at the minimum, uh, some kind of non specific cautioning that would just, Kind of increase the the base level of of 
hmm, watching out might be relevant. It, I also wonder why the acquaintance was so keen to, you know, what well, do you know him? Like that also almost suggests to me that maybe the acquaintance has maybe their antenna up already. So yeah, yeah, it, it's tricky, but that might be a kind of a half measure that would at least, you know, maybe minimize the risk of harm to the to the you know the person um, who this letter writer witnessed being uh, abused. Yeah. Or, but it, it could also, you know, at least help a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are certainly ways in which this is a fairly unique and in some ways like high stakes and highly dramatic yeah. version of a not uncommon problem though, which is like a small tight knit community, even if that's within a mm-hmm. larger city mm-hmm. uh, of a lot of mutual friends, mutual acquaintances, mutual colleagues, people in the same line of work um, where there is, you know, somebody who has abused one partner and is now dating someone else who doesn't know that first partner and that sort of question of what do the mutual friends or acquaintances do? And often they don't have something as specific and straightforward as I witnessed and intervened during a public uh, act of abuse. And so, you know, letter writer, I think what, what is, uh, I don't want to say like helpful here, but like something that can work in your favor here again, is this happened in public? So that you do not have to describe yourself as someone who intervened. Um, you don't have to even describe that it was his ex-wife. But I, I, I would, I would wonder if saying something like, and again, like I, I, I also think that's part of why the new friend asked about this, even if she's not conscious mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm. even if all she's gotten from him is that sort of bog standard preemptive, I have a crazy ex abusers sometimes share with new partners to preempt any stories of like violence, harm, or abuse. Um, You know, even if all he's kind of done is say like, yeah, I've had a bad divorce. I don't really want to talk about it, but it's been pretty wild. Or or he may have shared more. I don't know. Maybe he's gone so far as to say, you know, if you ever run into this person, you should know she has bad things to say about me trying to preempt you. Like if he recognized you, I don't know if he did, but that's possible too, that he had said like, this person's got a bad story about me, but it's actually this, like, this is really, really common for somebody who I think is at the level of anybody who would physically abuse and intimidate their partner on the street uh, is, is probably, that's usually not the first time. That's that's somebody who's like pretty experienced. So my guess is this guy has been operating like this for a while. So you can, uh, you know, I, I don't want to advise you to be more paranoid than you need to be, but be some paranoid for now. Um, so yeah, my guess is on some level, conscious or unconscious, uh, aware of her own discomfort or not, your new friend might have asked you about that because part of her is thinking this is weird. It's weird when someone you've just gotten to know tells you something that sits weirdly with you about their last partner and it makes me feel like there's something I don't know yet, but I don't want to think badly of this great new guy I'm dating. So let me ask around for some reassurance. That's my guess. Again, that is simply a possibility. All of that is to say, you were asked a direct question. You were an eyewitness to his abusiveness. It was abuse in a context where plausibly you could be one of multiple people who saw. And I think you should seriously consider telling her. I'm I'm just putting all that together to say, I think you should seriously consider it. I don't mean that you are on the hook for whether or not this guy chooses to abuse any future partners in the same way he abused his ex-wife. That is not your responsibility. But the question has been put to you and it's sitting with you and you're thinking about it. And so I just want to give you a lot of freedom to keep thinking about it. And if I were in your position, I would be asking advice specifically from you know people who are experts in dealing with domestic abuse. If I pursue this course of action, what are the risks to my own safety? What are the potential risks to others' safety? Not that like I'm responsible for, but just to be aware of. What's the safest way I could go about it? And can I live with the possible fallout on, on either side of doing or not doing something? So this is the research stage, but with an eye towards if there's a way you can do it, I would encourage you to do it. So all of that said, I think something like I didn't say anything at the time because I was really surprised, Um, but I actually do know something about this guy. Earlier this year, I witnessed him harass and attempt to physically abuse a woman. I don't want to go into extensive detail because of the like sensitivity of identities here, but, and I also know that you and I are just getting to know each other, but I can tell you 
you know, some details about what I saw, maybe what he was wearing, maybe what he did, anything that, uh, you know, is useful and say, I would not have known. Um, I'm so sorry. I realize this is incredibly jarring and this might be really difficult to incorporate with your sense of what a great guy he's been so far to you. Um, and I, I, I'm here if you want to talk about it further. If you have questions, all I know is that if I were in your position, I would want to know. Um, and I don't believe that without consigning him to uh, outer darkness forever and saying there is no way that he could ever get the kind of help um, and and change his life in such a way that he could become a non-abusive person, I don't think that it's, I, I, w- I wouldn't recommend him to date anyone. If you had asked me, should I go out with this guy? I'd tell you no. So sorry, that's a little rambling. I don't, I don't imagine you'll say any of that verbatim, but I, I think you could say those things without violating privacy. Because again, this happened outside. That's, that's what I keep coming yeah. back to. This happens outside. Other people might've seen, like it might've, she might be feeling weird because other people have maybe said things like, I think I saw that guy like pushing a woman around on the street in the fall. Like, Unless it was just like a deserted street at midnight and you were the only person out there, I think the odds are really good at least one or two other people saw and and put two and two together. And so you might not be the only person who witnessed it. June, I would love to hear about your next book project because it sounds so cool. Well, this is my first book, uh, unlike you, who... Has many under your belt. I, I'm I'm coming to book but writing none about late in life. <laughs> so right. you still oh, have I to wouldn't, drop. wouldn't have done one if you had either. Um, yeah. So this is going to be my first book, and it is about the kind of iconic spaces, not not specific places, not like the cubbyhole bar or Lama's bookstore, but the concept of lesbian bars, feminist bookstores, lesbian land, the softball diamond sex toy stores, and vacation destinations. And it's a kind of cultural history. And I think my main impetus was just, you know, as somebody who is is more mature in the community, you know, I've been uh, working in, in sort of on feminist projects since the 1980s. And there's so much, there's some misinformation, but the biggest problem is that people just don't know about the community about our history, both people who are inside the community and outside. Um, when we started Outward, which is Slate's LGBTQ section, we noticed that kind of basic explainer type pieces did really well. Like you know, why do lesbians drive Subarus? Uh, you know, just kind of weird things that that are just you know old hat to me, and I think to a lot of people of a certain age, they did really well because. I, I suspect back then, this is just projection, that a lot of straight people were hopefully a little bit ashamed that they just didn't know anything about, you know, people who they work next to or were their cousin or their sister or maybe even their mom. And so there's both a, a desire to just kind of share the, you know, this rich history uh, and some amazing stories, but also to set the record straight. Um uh, because I also see a lot of young people with just some weird ideas about what queer life was like in 1980. Do you see then, because uh, my first thought would have been that your audience would have been maybe younger queers who, uh, you know, as you know, the sort of classic problem is each new generation comes from various yeah. families from yeah. all over the world. So they don't necessarily immediately come into a sense of collective histories. Um, or or do you see uh, this mostly as a sort of explainer itself for uh straight people or both ideally or a a bit of both i mean i know that's kind of a a, maybe the the worst answer uh you know it's it's neither feast it's not bad to say you're writing for multiple audiences but but it also it feels like it's you know an odd little somewhere in between i i i i guess i don't like to mess with mr in between is 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 the is the reason i'm a little bit wishy-washy there but you're right that the basic one of the basic challenges of our community is that they're, you know, everybody starts at zero. Every single person starts at zero almost. And I think one of the great achievements, maybe the greatest achievement of the LGBTQ, you know, civil rights movement is that we are no longer alone, that not everybody starts at zero anymore. You know, that you can turn on your TV and see girls kissing, or you can turn on your TV and see, you know, a documentary about the, the, 
you know, the Black Cat Cafe raid or whatever it happens to be. Like there is much more, um, you know, that we are ha- having to hide less and having to kind of fight to discover things less. But at the same time, you know, there are good reasons why people even who are quite interested don't know stuff. You know, everything was just, you know, if you lived in a city that had a queer newspaper, maybe you would know something about what was going on in your city. But, every, you know, there's so many limitations even to those publications uh, that, you know, it, there are so many people who are genuinely interested who don't know some basic things. Um, and I've been, you know, I consider myself an expert on lesbian history and queer women's history. And I am discovering a lot as I'm researching this book. So uh, I'm still very much at the beginning and I, I, I wish I were a little further along, but um, it's a very fun and exciting and uh, it's a project that really fills me with both that kind of intellectual satisfaction, but also Oh man, there are just some great stories, you know? Yeah. Oh, that sounds thrilling. So then uh, my next question is two part. Uh, one is, do you have then a sense of when your book will be bounded, like in time? Like, is it 20th century? Is it uh, just um, a few decades? Do you do you not know yet? And then the other is the question of um, research, which is, did you mostly know going in, I'm going to be looking at these archives or the histories of this or that organization, and then you've simply found more than you thought? Or... Um, have you been sort of more uh, agnostic about where you get your research from and then realized there were new sources of archives that you hadn't planned on looking at that you now will? Well, to answer the first question, um, I would say, obviously there are some things that happened before, you know, lesbians have existed for quite a long time, but talk, you know, about the culture and the community, uh, really most things that I'll be writing about start in the 70s, which is not to say, of course, lesbians have been playing softball. Lesbians have been gathering together. But, you know, in terms of big community uh, events or organizations and places, most mostly starting in the 70s and, and moving through time. As to the research, this is a little bit of a, of a tricky thing that's very specific to when I started to work on it because it was in the pandemic. And so even though I know about various resources and I have learned about more. They were closed when I was um, doing my you know, preliminary, you know, writing my proposal, starting the process. They've opened up to a certain extent, but still a lot of archives are um, either open on a much more limited basis or with many fewer people, many fewer resources. Um, so it has been something of a, it has not, the research has not happened as I thought it would. Um, you know, I've, I didn't imagine I would be reading quite so many doctoral dissertations, um, although they have become my new favorite thing. And, you know, so it's not to suggest that I haven't been to archives or I haven't visited, um, you know, these great libraries. But I've also maybe because of the circumstances of when I started my research, I've also spent more time just kind of paging through things online. You know, the Gale um, has a big, um, I think they call it the Directory of Gender and Sexuality, something like that. And they have a lot of material that they've digitized, including the subject uh, matter collection of the Lesbian History Archives, which is just a few blocks from my house, but which is just barely open these days. Um, so I have spent much more time just kind of clicking my way through documents rather than actually touching them. That is, uh, so remarkable. And I'm so curious now, I mean, I mean, it's so interesting because I I think of my own uh, very amateurish understanding of, of different lesbian spaces in the seventies. Uh, I, I tend to think of them as being very atomized. Like you have, you know, your plot in this state or you have your, uh, coffee shop yeah. in that city. And I don't necessarily think of them as being in direct conversation with one another or sharing resources. And then I just thought, I have no idea, actually, for all I know, there could have been formal and informal networks that crossed yeah. state and, and national lines that I would have no idea. Do you have any sense of whether or not that's an, uh, a misconception? Yeah, no, that, that actually is, is something that surprised me. So the, the first section that I worked on was the one that is most familiar to me. 
I worked in feminist bookstores. That that you know that was my alpha and omega. That was that was my place. That was my community center. Um, and I, so I thought I thought I I knew I know this story. And I was surprised to learn, for example, how you know at the very beginning when when women were just thinking, well, shall we start opening bookstores? Which of course you know they did again in an atomized way. You know some women in Minnesota, some women in San Francisco. But there was a much bigger kind of desire to get together, you know, maybe because they could, that was the only way they could do it was to like get in a car, drive, you know, because flights were so much more expensive then. They would get in cars and drive to central locations. So there would be these, you know, feminist bookstore or feminist, really it was called the, the women in print. It wasn't just for publishers. It wasn't just for writers. It wasn't just for distributors. Women who were interested in in getting the word out in printed materials would gather in places like Omaha, Nebraska, because that was a more or less central location that a lot of women could get to. And they would drive in cars and, and then they would bring from there uh, and take back to their own cities and their own communities in Michigan or in, um, you know, in Idaho or wherever in Oregon, they would take physical materials, they would take ideas, new groups would would start and, and would emerge. And it was often through atomized groups getting together and starting more atomized groups because of this. Um, you know, I, I, as I'm talking, I'm picturing an ant farm and, and like just all the, all the little move, you know, these, these networks of movements that started and took off. So it, it is fascinating. You know, when you can't just text someone when you can't just, you know, send someone an email. You people used to get together in person. Crazy. Yeah. No, I mean that's amazing. I'm thinking now of the the big sort of like controversy when when the daughters of Belitis started to disband and um somebody made off yeah. with the mailing yeah. list for the the latter um, and used it to start their own uh, lesbian network elsewhere. And there was, I, I don't remember if it actually like went to court, but there was a real back and forth of like, you can't take that yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, and and that, the, the person who took it started uh, Nyad Books and which, you know, it, terrible trash in many ways. Oh, I remember Nyad yeah, Books yeah. when I, you know, when I first came out, like I bought everything they had. In many ways, terrible trash. But actually, you know, when I think of it, you know, as I said, I worked in feminist bookstores. Women would come in every weekend. They would buy an armful. They would buy them by the armload, you know. And so not only did they give people new ideas of, of the lives they could lead, but also they kept feminist bookstores in business. They kept feminist publishers in business. They allowed lesbians to write um, and get paid for it. Like, uh, you know, there are these, these odd little things uh, just spark so much more. In many ways, it is uh, about, um, you know, how things uh, move out from the center and, and create new things, emergence. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, it really is. I also was glad I finally remembered um, it was Rita Laporte um, who had oh. stolen it. Because it was after um, Phyllis and Dell uh, mm -hmm. uh, had fled to San Francisco. I guess, I think you flee if you steal the list. You just move <laughs> if you're not with the list. Um, but, you know, I remember, yeah, she, she's the one who took it with her. And I, I love, too, what you were saying about Nyad Press, because I think one of the reasons that, um, especially when it, I think about it in the context of, like, lesbian pulp mm -hmm. fiction, um, the idea of trash um, or, like, trash-interested publishers is so useful um, because, at least in part, what that means is we don't have a rigorous screening process for content. And so, of course, you often get lots of badly written trash, but trash also can just refer to things outside of the bounds of of what is considered acceptable to print in, in other um, formats yeah. um, and how useful that that trashiness has been for, for queer histories. Yeah, no, the, the pulps, again, is so fascinating because... Some of them were good. There were a few lesbian authors and, you know, many were written by men. They were just absolutely, you know, it was a factory system. Many of them were utter junk, but they still had real, you know, really positive outcomes often. There are so many people who say, like, this was the first time I realized that what I was struggling with was like an identity, that there were other people like me out there. It's maybe hard to to almost believe that now. You didn't know that lesbians were a thing. You didn't know that homosexuality was a thing. 
but of course, why? How would people not think that way? And so, seeing um, even sad stories, even you know, formulate um, nonsense with you know templated endings, they would still indicate that there are bars in Greenwich Village where these awful people gather. And you know, we all do this. We all read things, not seeing what we're supposed to see, but seeing something else. Um, I remember growing up as a kid reading the horoscope in the newspaper. And they'll say, you know, somebody of the opposite sex. And I thought, yeah, no, the same sex, man. You know, like we all read things in a way that suits our, uh, you know, our, our inner uh, landscape. And uh, the popes were read that way too. And they were incredibly useful, even if they were utter junk written by exploitative, you know, made, made for pure exploitation. Jerks. They still had good outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so fascinating to me, especially like, you know, in the context of this sort of these latest rounds of increasingly homophobic and transphobic legislation, which, you know, uh, is too depressing to spend a lot of time on here. So we're not going to, but without in any way, um, trying to minimize the seriousness of those laws. One of the things that it does remind me of that's sort of fascinating is this, I, I think like fundamental truth, which is that somehow, uh, queerness and transness, um, don't, don't need to be taught. Like they're somehow the more eternal and natural of the things um, mm-hmm. because somehow mm-hmm. we figure it out every generation um, and heterosexuality is the one that has to be uh, carefully taught lest we forget. Again, none of that means, oh, it's good that there's more repression and violence because that'll just teach us to be sneakier. I don't mean that at all. It's horrible. Yeah. Don't do it. Um, but it it does remind me of the oddness of uh just that idea of like queerness springs eternal and it's sort of fascinating and I'm so excited for your project. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Um, I love spaces. I love thinking about spaces and um, it, it, there's a funny, again, little overlap in our Venn diagrams. I, I've been working on my 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 next book, which is my first fingers crossed novels. Um, I'm finally writing that Barbara Pym pastiche I've been threatening to write for the last decade um, and I've been thinking about it especially in the context of um, Pauline Bren's uh, nonfiction uh, book last year uh, about the Barbizon Hotel and specifically women's hotels as this sort of like bridging moment in women's communities, you know, prior to the 20th century, primarily you'd be seeing those in religious communities, um, some of which would be state sponsored and some of which wouldn't be. And then, you know, more in the 60s and 70s, you would get the beginning of explicitly lesbian or explicitly lesbian feminist communities. Um, and in the sort of like 20s to late 50s, one of the bridging points, obviously not the only one by a long shot, is women's hotels. Um, yeah. And they had such a brief flourishing moment that also coincided with like art deco architecture, which is one of my favorite aspects of the 20th century aside the, from the yes. automat. So um, that's, yes. I, you know. Yeah. You know, Danny, I have to tell you, my first visit to New York, I stayed at the Barbizon. It was still a hotel for women. Oh, my goodness. That's remarkable. Do you, um, do you remember how long you stayed there? I stayed for a week. I was 18. I really don't remember anything at all except um, going to the roof for some reason. And I, it, like maybe that's one of those invented kind of memories. Um, and it, there was so well, much that was If you threw was, all your you know, clothes off the roof, then it was an invented memory because that's <laughs> Sylvia Plath no, and the bell no, jar. that I didn't but. do. No, no. That is remarkable. That's very cool. I've, I've been reading that the rooms were quite small and sort of monastic. Was that your sense? Yes. Yes. That's my recollection. Uh, well, obviously. And it can't, it, it must have been cheap too, because I had zero money. I, I was traveling to the US because I was doing American studies at university at a time when there was funding and when we got <laughs> grants and so on. So I, you know, I, 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 I had some source of funding, uh, but I had no money of my own, so it must have been cheap. It was famously for for decades cheap. I don't know if that was always the case throughout the different like ups and downs of the seventies and eighties, but I do know that at least as of, as of last year, there are still five of the uh, original women who had rent controlled apartments in the Barbizon who have survived it first going co ed and then going condo. Uh, when they redid it in the last go round, I think in like 2012, they they all got put up in nearby hotels, and they're back in. And it's just women in their you know 60s, 70s, and 80s still paying like 30 bucks a month to live at the oh. you know remodeled yeah. beyond recognition. But still, for those five women, the Barbizon Hotel is not done. And I just think that's amazing. amazing. June, you were amazing. Thank you so much, Danny. This was so much fun. I love just. Um coming up with an idea in five minutes and then telling someone that that's what they should do with their lives. So obviously this was 
pure pleasure. It was. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It's been a joy uh, working uh, alongside you and I can't wait to read your book. Thank you so much. Uh, And definitely, the feeling is definitely mutual. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. You're placating your mom and it's not working. Are there other places that you're placating people that's not working that you maybe want to stop and say like, what would happen if I lived with my mother-in-law being mad that we're not the same religion as she is or we're not as religious as she is? What would it look like if I didn't consider that my problem to solve? I could still be polite and respectful. I'm not look like telling you to like mail her atheist tracts. I'm saying, what would it look like if you floated the idea with your partner of saying, what if we didn't do that? How would we live with her saying, this upsets me? Uh, how could we politely say, I'm sorry to hear that. I wish you the best. Like, why is it reasonable that you pantomime a religious expression that means nothing to you um, in the midst of all this other placating you're doing? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.